Heather, how do you make Lord Voldemort float? I don't know. How? You take one scoop of ice cream and one scoop of Lord Voldemort. (laughs) Oh my god. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for home cooks. Bone of the Father, unknowingly given, you will renew your son. Flesh of the Servant, were willingly given, you will revive your master. The blood of the enemy, forcibly taken, you will resurrect your foe. I am Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And um, this one's going to suck, y'all. We are reading the chapters called The Third Task and Flesh, Blood, and Bone from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. There will be heavy, heavy, heavy spoilers in this episode because, spoiler alert, Cedric dies. There will also be a fuck ton of cursing because, spoiler alert, Cedric fucking dies. And there will also be some adult themes. This week's adult themes are Family Weekend, Riddles, and Riddles. Do you get it? 127 Hours, Challenging Recipes, and The Banality of Evil. Alex, Jesus fucking Christ, what happens this week? In this week's chapters, Harry must solve an impenetrable maze of riddles and challenges in order to free his baby brother from the clutches of the evil Goblin King, Jareth, played by (laughs) David Bowie. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, wait. He meets a worm that that gives him bad directions. There are some people that dance with their heads off of them. Jim Henson has made all of it. Uh, it's oh, basically sorry. Fraggle Rock with David Bowie it's songs. It's evil Fraggle Rock. It is evil Fraggle Rock. That is sorry, false. that's the plot of Labyrinth <laughs> that I'm thinking of. But Harry does wonder in these chapters what kind of magic spell to use. <laughs> You've been really, really plotting these Oh, jokes. I've been thinking about, hey, it's another 80s movie. It's true. I guess I'm the 80s movie guy. I guess you're just very old and very <laughs> lame. I, I, you know, I was a baby in the '80s. I know, I, I'm the more of a is, '90s kid. The thing but is, it doesn't make any sense to weirdly, me. Weirdly, I just have I all have all these '80s. When is it not the '80s? It's the '80s forever, kind of. I don't know that that's a great hot take. Actually, somebody wrote a book about it. Who? This guy, this journalist, this kind of a. You know what? We're not gonna go here, Alex. In this week's <laughs> what, Alex? For real, what happened this week? In this week's chapters, Harry tells Ron and Hermione all the crazy shit he learned from the Pensieve. Rita Skeeter strikes again. She's written this story about how Harry is disturbed, describing how he collapsed in divinations class, clutching a scar and screaming. She goes into how Harry is a parcel tongue and the mysterious attacks on students in his second year at Hogwarts, how he's befriended giants and werewolves, and basically says that Harry is a no-goodnik and maybe he shouldn't be allowed to participate in the tournaments because he might use the dark arts in his lust for fame and glory. Also that maybe he's faking his scar hurting for attention, I don't know. It's some Rita Skeeter bullshit. Harry reacts pretty nonchalantly to it. He says, ah, she's gone off me a bit, hasn't she? Which I think is cool as fuck. Draco and company are acting kind of sketchy. The trio see them, see Draco whispering into his cupped hands at one point outside of a window. Hermione gets a flash of inspiration She thinks that she's figured out how Rita Skeeter is somehow eavesdropping on all these private conversations. Obviously, nobody saw her in Divinations class. What is she up to? And Harry's finding this out on the day of the third task, so that's, like, a sort of mindfuck. Nothing compared to the mindfuck he's about to get, though. (laughs) It is also family weekend at Hogwarts. The 
champion's families have been invited to watch them compete in this life or death tournament. So that's fun for everyone involved. Mrs. Weasley and Bill Weasley have come to watch Harry compete because they're solid folks. Bill catches the eye of Fleur Delacour, who Harry can tell doesn't care about fang earrings. And long she, hair. And long hair. She might even like them. Yeah. Dig it, dig as it. it were. She might even dig it. <laughs> Amos... Does he get it? Because he's a digger. <laughs> he's like an archaeologist. He is, yeah. Oh, oh, I get it. Amos Diggory is rude to Harry because he's been... He's still kind of put off that Rita Skeeter's article about the tournament names Harry as the Hogwarts champion and didn't even mention Cedric. We also find out that Cedric has two parents. Yeah. In a previous episode, we identified Amos as a single father, which was not correct. So that is a correction because we have more journalists in integrity than Rita Skeeter. The third task commences. It does not involve David Bowie. Cedric and Harry are let into the maze first, followed by Victor Crumb, followed by Fleur Delacour. Harry uses his wand as a compass, which seems like an instance of a wand being super fucking useful. Uh, Harry is, like, running into a suspicious lack of obstacles. However, he does, I don't know, there's some deal with a mist that turns him upside down and a Dementor that's actually a Boggart, so... This is all shit Harry's dealt with before. It's, like, firmly in his wheelhouse. There's a sphinx that asks him a riddle. He overhears Fleur scream, so he's like, that sucks. His first instinct, of course, is to help Fleur, because he still thinks they're going to let everyone die in this maze, which, um... They might. They might. But he forges ahead. He overhears a struggle between Victor Crumb and... And Cedric Diggory blasts his way through one of the hedges, which, I mean, if he was able to do that, why didn't he just blow the hedges away in the first place? But, you know, who's to say? Also, there's a big-ass blast-ended scroot at some point. These scroots are like 20 feet long at this point. I mean, they're like legitimate, hardcore monsters. Like monster monsters. Big-time monsters. Hagrid made a really bad call breeding them. (laughs) Um, what hubris. What did... Yeah. Man's hubris. Um, anyway, just, what yeah. happens with Victor Crumb? Victor is c- using the Cruciatus Curse against Cedric. Harry stuns Crumb, rescuing Cedric. They part ways again, but then they meet up in the final stretch of the maze... Harry rescues Cedric from being attacked by a giant spider, which is probably another Hagrid contribution. Hagrid is contributing the worst fucking shit to this maze. Yeah, Hagrid is the one they go to and they're like, hey, what have you got in the way of monsters? (laughs) And he's like, oh boy, howdy, let me tell ya. (laughs) Let me tell ya. Hagrid's like, I sure hope you win, Harry, but I'm finding some fucked up shit that's gonna try to kill you first. (laughs) He's like, if you're singing a lullaby. Yeah. So. No, fuck that Hagrid. Just don't breed monsters. Harry and Cedric have to tag team this spider Bilbo Baggins style. They manage to defeat it, but not before the spider has fucking bit Harry and like crushed his leg. Does this does the spider like fall? No, the spider drops him. Ha- yeah. Harry like distracts the spider at first. It decides not to kill Cedric. It goes after Harry. I, I, there's we some, don't like, need this whole thing. There's some, like, RPG battle, like, Stop. logistics here. We don't need here. any of this. Okay. <laughs> at this point, they're both looking at the Triwizard Cup. Harry says, no, you've earned this victory. Go for it. Cedric's like, no, man, you saved me from the spider. You helped me with the dragon. They're both like, no, you do it. No, you do it. Then finally, Harry says, we'll do it together. Cedric grins. He's like, deal. Cedric fucking helps Harry up. They stagger toward the Triwizard Cup like it's a fucking Visa commercial in the Olympics. They both touch the Triwizard Cup at the exact same time. Harry feels a tug behind his navel and whoosh! Suddenly they find themselves in a graveyard. Is that what's supposed to be happening? I don't know. Probably not. They're debating what's happening. 
Cedric's like, wands out. Harry's like, fuck yeah, let's take our all-purpose killing and attack machines out to defend ourselves. A hooded figure carrying what appears to be a baby is approaching them. Very unsettling. They hear a high, cold voice, where have we heard that before, say, KILL THE SPARE! The hooded figure pulls out his wand, says, Avada Kedavra, and straight up kills Cedric Diggory right in front of Harry's eyes. Who's the hooded figure? But but buh it's motherfucking Peter Pettigrew! Peter grabs Harry, shoves him up against a gravestone, ties him to the gravestone, and then goes about conducting some kind of crazy ritual with a cauldron using a recipe he found on Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything Evil. Wormtongue says some crazy incantations. He's like, bone of the father, unknowingly given. Some dust rises out of the gravestone Harry's tied to, which says, Tom Riddle. Senior. It doesn't say senior, it just says Tom Riddle. But it's his dad. It's Voldy's dad. Drops into the cauldron. Oh, before that, he drops this, like, crazy baby thing into the cauldron. It's like, it's a disgusting baby. It's... It's like Monster Baby. I, what's the best way to describe this I baby? I think Monster, monster Baby. Monster Baby. Pulls out a dagger, cuts his own fucking hand off, and says, it's like flesh of the servant, willingly sacrificed, I think. Something like that. Something like that. Goes to Harry, slashes the crook of his arm, puts it some blood in a vial. Blood of the enemy, you will resurrect your foe, or I'm, I'm butchering the poem, but yeah, there's also like a, everything also, nah, it doesn't rhyme. It does not rhyme. There's like a free verse poem, and uh, I think those are all the ingredients. So, the fucking baby's in the bathwater. Uh, <laughs> there's a crazy light show. Everything gets, like, super steamy and white. Harry's like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Please let that fucked up baby drown. But nope. A figure climbs out of the cauldron in the middle of the graveyard. It's got slits for nose, red eyes, and he realizes Lord Voldemort, Lovo has risen again. So let's first just take a collective moment as a group to feel our feelings. <sighs> because this week was rough for real. We haven't said this particular phrase in a while, but if it doesn't apply here, I don't know when it does. Cry now, cry later, cry forever. That is what we are doing this week. But before we get to the worst thing that happens in this or kind of any book. Let's talk about something a little lighter. Yellow journalism. Very reluctantly, Ron handed over the newspaper. Harry turned it over and found himself staring at his own picture. Beneath the banner headline, Harry Potter, Disturbed and Dangerous. The boy who defeated he who must not be named is unstable and possibly dangerous, writes Rita Skeeter, special correspondent. Alarming evidence has recently come to light about Harry Potter's strange behavior, which casts doubts upon his suitability to compete in a demanding competition like the Triwizard Tournament, or even to attend Hogwarts School. Potter, the Daily Prophet, can exclusively reveal, regularly collapses at school and is often heard to complain of pain in the scar on his forehead, relic of the curse with which you-know-who attempted to kill him. On Monday last, midway through a divination lesson, your Daily Prophet reporter witnessed Potter storming from the class, claiming that his scar was hurting too badly to continue studying. It is possible, say top experts at St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries, that Potter's brain was affected by the attack inflicted upon him by you-know-who, and that his insistence that the scar is still hurting is an expression of his deep-seated confusion. He might even be pretending, said one specialist. This could be a plea for attention. I, what the fuck is Rita's deal? She's... So she reports that Harry shouldn't be competing in the tournament, which she's kind of right about, but for completely wrong reasons, which is that she says he's disturbed. Yeah, I have like really bad, according to most people, feelings about like characters because I constantly hammer Dumbledore and I'm kind of a Rita Skeeter apologist. 
think she's being fair to Harry and I think she's being really vicious and vindictive to a child in writing this story. But the scene that goes down in Professor Trelawney class is evidence that Harry is disturbed if ever there was evidence. Like it's a really terrifying thing to have happen and I think it's like not Harry's fault and it doesn't mean that he's like not all there and like she's like being I mean she's being a monster and I'm gonna acknowledge that but like Harry is disturbed Harry has a curse scar that hurts when an evil snake man is angry <laughs> like that's not not disturbed so it's just like Rita's such a piece of shit but once again like she's asking the right questions which is like I mean ideally the questions that this expose leads to are like is Harry Potter getting everything he needs as like as like a traumatized young child like does it make sense to have like the survivor of one of the most like notoriously brutal murders in the wizarding world compete in like death challenges is this a good idea answer zero percent yes no it is not a good idea I know but she's coming at it from such a ugly angle and ostracizing Harry, stigmatizing Harry oh, for what he's been through. Totally agree. Totally agree. That's the problem with Rita Skeeter is she asks all these questions and then she comes to these conclusions that are just, because she's, she's mean. She's right. an awful person, but there's just this like, this seed of a point in there, which is like, yeah, Harry Potter probably like should not have been allowed to be in this tournament. And it's fucking crazy that they just let him go through with it. So I guess that kind of answers... My next question, which is, is this news? Hell yeah, it's news. He's like the most famous person in the wizarding world. Is it news that he collapsed in class? It's news that he held on to his curse scar and like screamed bloody murder as though Voldemort was in the room with him. Mm. Yeah, it's absolutely news. I mean, what she should have done rather than fucking go to the Slytherins to like have them just like bully Harry via the press <laughs> is like interview some teachers about like, hey, like what's the contingency plan here? Like interview Professor Trelawney. Like, do you generally tell your students they're going to die? And if so, is that great? Rita does report some real news in that. And she seems to be burying the lead a little bit here. But this appears to be the first time the basilisk attacks during Harry's second year have been reported in the media. Oh my god, that's true. And it's just way down in a quote from Draco that there were a bunch of attacks on students. Maybe this has just all happened off stage, but you're right. I don't remember any of this being in the papers when students were getting petrified and worse <laughs> at their school. So Hogwarts has a really good crisis PR team, oh as God. they should, because the school is always in crisis. Yeah, whoever their like public information officer is, is like the only person in the entirety of Hogwarts doing his or her fucking job. It's Filch, Moonlighting. Honestly, that wouldn't surprise me. Maybe <laughs> maybe Mrs. Norris is their spokescat. Yeah. Content. <laughs> Catwife and spokescat. All press inquiries should be diverted to our folks' cat. Mrs. Norris. Mrs. Norris. Mrs. is her first name, weirdly. <laughs> and this is another instance of Rita Skeeter doing poor, like, slipshod journalism in that she doesn't ask Harry for comment or Dumbledore. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, she gets all these, like, really clearly just libelous quotes from Slytherins. And then she doesn't even, yeah, it's not even like a perfunctory, like Harry Potter could not immediately be reached for comment. She just like doesn't even try. This ran with a story. So bad reporting, bad editing. Terrible editing. The, Who is in charge of this desk? Man, what, and what is this desk? The Daily Prophet just going downhill. Yeah. It's not like it used to be. Maybe, <laughs> maybe there have been a lot of layoffs. I don't know what the Probably. Wizarding Rita Media Skeeter's looks like. Rita just like the only person left there. Yeah, I she's mean, well, just... clearly she's the only journalist in the Wizarding world, yeah. world that we've heard of because she also writes the profiles for Witch Weekly. She also but... is, she is the type though to just be like the survivor. In, like, <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. though? Like round after round of newsroom layoffs and you're just like, you look around at the rubble and there's that one reporter and like that's Rita. Being like, yo, get the fuck at me. I am going nowhere. I am like a cockroach. You can nuclear bomb me and I'm fine. <laughs> All right, we can't really belabor the Rita Skeeter point too much. Although I will just point out that 
she was the bug that Harry, as he was dozing off in Professor Shalani's classroom, like saw on the windowsill. Mind blown again. Yeah. I completely miss this every time. Rita would get all my secrets because I would just be like, Oh, look, a beetle. Yeah. (laughs) That's a cool beetle. I don't know. Rita sucks as usual, but there needs to be reporting on like some of the shit that's going down. The worst thing is about to happen. Rita instinctually knows something is wrong. She says Harry shouldn't be in this tournament. She's wrong about why, but I don't know. No one is watching the shop here. Cedric dies in darkness. Yeah. Oh. He does. I don't know. The school's not super transparent because of spokes cap Mrs. Norris. Or whoever holding is running it the this, fuck yeah, down. holding it down. There were basilisk attacks. All this is leading up to something super bad. All the signs are there, and they're sort of in the press. And shit's about to get fucked anyway. Yeah, it's true. No, they do. They need better. They need better journalism in we, the Wizarding World. Yeah, we need a Rita Skeeter who is ethical and good at her job. We do. We absolutely do. So, speaking of people who are not good at their fucking jobs, why? Is everybody's, like, take on what Harry should do next? Like, just go in the maze. It's gonna be fine. The second you get through the third task, then we can deal with the fact that Voldemort's back. And the whole time you're like, Voldemort's in the fucking task. What are you guys talking about? He's in the Triwizard Tournament because Voldemort's in the task. Like, Or, or not that he's back. Well, that he's growing stronger. Right, right. Okay. okay yeah. But, I mean, they know that Voldemort is, like, up to some shenanigans. And they know, or they're almost positive, that the reason Harry's name was in the Goblet of Fire is because Voldemort was up to some shenanigans. So they're like, okay, so stay in the tournament and then we'll talk about it. Let's maybe do exactly what Voldemort wants and then we'll deal with uh, Voldemort. Voldemort's plan is batshit crazy for so many reasons, but it's sort of smart that he's actually trying to have Harry win. Yeah, well, he's also relying really heavily on, like, the chaos that he knows Hogwarts to be. (laughs) Like, he's like, listen, nobody knows what the fuck is going on over there, and I'm going to exploit that in, like, a bunch of different directions at once, because, like, planting Moody relies on chaos, making the fucking Triwizard Cup into a port key. Anyway, yeah, so Voldemort's plan is, like, insane but it's also perfect because like just nobody is checking on anything and he knows that yeah yeah and he's like Dumbledore is not a details guy and the fact that Harry's supposed to win I think is the part of the plan that is pretty clever I agree with that especially because like he is exploiting like a particular characteristic and you might say a character flaw of Harry's which is like I would say a certain amount of hubris, but also just like, as the Sorting Hat says, like a thirst to prove himself. Like, once Harry gets the taste of the possibility that he might win, Harry really helps along Voldemort's plot of Mm -hmm. making him win because Harry doesn't sort of like back off and say like, it's inappropriate that I am involved in this at all. I am just going to like, I am not a threat. Please be my friend. (laughs) Which is a shout out to the excellent play Puffs, which we saw last night. Harry's not like that at all. Harry's like, no, I'm going to win this motherfucker. And Voldemort's like, yeah, okay, do it. And, all right, so everybody's trying to get Harry through the third task safely. That's a terrible idea. They should actually be trying to break his leg or something and send her to the hospital wing, but that's neither here nor there. What do we think about the third task? Uh, I hate the third task. I think it's incredibly fucking boring. And it's just a maze with monsters. Like, it's really cliche. Yeah, they sort of phoned it in. They did. It seems way easier than all of the other tasks. (laughs) And partly I know that's because, like, Moody is, like, getting every possible obstacle out of Harry's way. But it's, like, pretty easy for Cedric, too. They got fucking dragons and mermaids, and then the best they could do were, like, scroots. (laughs) And, like, big bushes. It just seems like you guys, like, we, you made it to the finish line, and now it's just like, like, wah, wah. Yeah, they're just like, uh, corn maze. It's not corn maze, it's hedges, but, but you know. But still, hedge maze. It's just like, it feels kind of, it's just boring. They've got the Bogart as the dude that pops out and scares you. Um, it is a greatest hits of Defense Against the Dark Arts classes it, thus it, far. It, it is. It's also another thing where, like, you can't watch it. They're right. just sitting there They're, watching a hedge. Yeah. The first task was baller and you could watch people fight dragons and then you watch a lake and then you watch a bush. <laughs> but 
it also just really drags. Like this chapter is incredibly long and it doesn't need to be because almost nothing happens right. in that it doesn't, maze. It doesn't add that much. I think I wish there were just like a third of it. He's basically like using a compass for like 10 pages. <laughs> like it describes him using his wand as a compass half a dozen times minimum. And it takes like three sentences to say it. And I'm just like, bitch, we know it's north. It's all wayfinding. Yeah, it is. It's, it's every conversation in New York, basically. Harry's like, well, you know. The F train I, was all fucked. Yeah, so it was going on... See, yes. now this, this is boring. This is boring It's now. boring the to talk was about. on the West 4th line, and then... The maze was growing darker with every passing minute as the sky overhead deepened to navy. He reached the second fork. Point me, he whispered to his wand, holding it flat in his palm. The wand spun around once and pointed toward his right, into solid hedge. That way was north, and he knew that he needed to go northwest for the center of the maze. The best he could do was to take the left fork and go right again as soon as possible. The path ahead was empty too, and when Harry reached the right turn and took it, he again found his way unblocked. Oh, and don't forget the Sphinx. There was a riddle in there too. Oh my god, it's not a fucking riddle. It's not a riddle, it's a pun! <laughs> it's like a word jumble. It's, it is. It's like a scene... It's like a puzzle from that NPR show with Ophira Ask Eisenberg. Ask Me Another. It's like Ask Me Another. It's like... Sp- I der is the answer. And you're just like, that's not a riddle. That's not how yeah. you answer a riddle. It's a word game. It's a it's, it's a little a, it's a brain teaser. This does feel like a lameish knockoff of the sorcerer's stone obstacles down to the riddle. The sorcerer's stone puzzles and challenges each developed something or showed something about the characters, like Ron's bravery, Hermione's coolness, all the shit Dumbledore says, uh, to steal the house cup from Slytherin. This one just, I don't know, yeah, it's Harry running around. Only when we hit the spider do the challenges in the maze say anything about the characters. So, the big the big spider, not the spider not sp- fucking riddle. I der. <laughs> Let's talk about that, because that is one of the most important character moments for both Harry and Cedric. It is Cedric's most important moment as a character. And it is Cedric's downfall. Cedric makes a choice that is so fundamentally and so profoundly and so unimaginably the wrong choice in this moment. But it's so perfectly in keeping with who he is as a person. Well, it's so cruel because it's also the right choice. Yeah, he does the right thing and he gets the worst. I mean, he gets the ultimate punishment for it. He pays the ultimate price. Both of them do the right thing. Both of us, Harry said. What? We'll take it at the same time. It's still a Hogwarts victory. We'll tie for it. Cedric stared at Harry. He unfolded his arms. You? You sure? Yeah, said Harry. Yeah. We've helped each other out, haven't we? We both got here. Let's just take it together. For a moment, Cedric looked as though he couldn't believe his ears. Then his face split in a grin. You're on, he said. Come here. They use a profound and way past their age sense of fairness and equanimity. And they just like use their best hearts and are like, look, we're both Hogwarts champions. We're in this together more than we're not. It's like the letter we read last week. It's like the only time there's any cooperation between the houses. Yeah. They're like, essentially, we both stand for the same thing. We fought hard. We've come out neck and neck over and over. Like, this is both of ours. Cedric is such a perfect Hufflepuff. Cedric is exactly the model of, like, why the Hufflepuffs aren't just, like, the other ones. Because, like, the qualities that they sort of, that we, all everybody kind of dismisses as, like, just lame. Like, oh, the Hufflepuffs, like, they're nice. No, he's, like, They're not just the nice ones. Like loyalty and humility and honoring friendships and honoring commitments. Those are profoundly important and good qualities. And Cedric displays every single one of them. He is fair. He's honorable. He is just. I mean Harry even thinks to himself toward the end of the chapter. 
that Cedric is willing to give up the kind of glory that Hufflepuff hasn't won in hundreds of years. And that's like, the thing is, that the paradox of that is that's exactly what a Hufflepuff would do. The reason Hufflepuff doesn't get the glory isn't because Hufflepuff isn't like deserving or that they don't do like really impressive things. It's that like in a pinch of this sort, Hufflepuffs like give room for other people to take the glory. That's like an essential, that's a quality, that's humility. That's what that means. They're humble. They don't need the admiration or recognition. They need to do what's right. A true school champion? He is. He's he is the true school champion, and Harry will live with the guilt of that for the rest of his life. I think one of the tragedies of this scene is that, uh, this is kind of an obvious thing to say, but they're both taking this seriously, but they both know at the end of the day it's a game. And the tragedy of this is neither of them know the stakes they're dealing with. No, and they they treat it like a game when it matters most. They're like, you know what? Neither of us really has to win alone. This is a contest. This isn't life or death. And the minute they come to that really, really, really noble conclusion, it becomes life or death. It's really cruel. That is peak Voldemort. It is. It is. And peak Voldemort is taking advantage of moments of goodness and like moments where somebody is being like pure and valiant and true and turning those into opportunities for, like, abject hideousness. Right, and I I think that's part of the game here. Voldemort wants to take a moment of triumph for Harry and turn the tables immediately, the same way Harry did to him when he swept down on the Potter's house. Yeah, that's a really good point. 14 years ago. But it's so dark because he's doing it with such cruel deliberateness, and Harry just happened to be in the right or wrong place at the right or wrong time. I think, though, that even if Harry and Cedric knew the stakes, I don't think the choice would have been any different. I don't either. I don't think Cedric would have let him face, face it, it by himself. No, I don't either. And I think the tragedy of Cedric is that Cedric was destined to be there in this moment. Like, there's something really profound about Cedric's role in this because Cedric was always he was like the other Hogwarts champion I think there's something really fated about them facing this together it's actually a glorious choice on JK's part like this is a really like stunning turn of events but it's great it's really I think it's really well done and what it takes us to is the worst moment that we have had so far and one of the worst moments. Probably a top three. That we have. Of Harry Potter moments. Yeah. Kill the spare. Cedric shot him a quizzical look. They both turned back to watch the approaching figure. It stopped beside a towering marble headstone only six feet from them. For a second, Harry and Cedric and the short figure simply looked at one another. And then, without warning, Harry's scar exploded with pain. It was agony such as he had never felt in all his life. His wand slipped from his fingers as he put his hands over his face. His knees buckled. He was on the ground and he could see nothing at all. His head was about to split open. From far away above his head, he heard a high, cold voice say, Kill the spare! A swishing noise and a second voice which reached the words to the night, Avada Kedavra! A blast of green light blazed through Harry's eyelids, and he heard something heavy fall to the ground beside him. The pain in his scar reached such a pitch that he retched, and then it diminished. Terrified of what he was about to see, he opened his stinging eyes. Cedric was lying spread-eagled on the ground beside him. He was dead. For a second that contained an eternity, Harry stared into Cedric's face at his open grey eyes, blank and expressionless as the windows of a deserted house, at his half-open mouth, which looked slightly surprised. And then, before Harry's mind had accepted what he was seeing, before he could feel anything but numb disbelief, he felt himself being pulled to his feet. I think think this is the most shocking moment in the series, just because of how abruptly it happens. And this is when it really becomes... A war story. Yeah. Because he's the first casualty that we really get. You 
he's the second person who dies on stage, but he's the first major character who dies on stage. He's the first person Harry ever sees die. And that is going to become a really important thing mm-hmm. that happens to Harry over and over. I mean, besides when he was a baby, but I don't think that really... That clearly doesn't count because he can't see the Thestrals. But I think the swiftness with which it happens is a really bold, authorial choice. Because you really do think this is going to mirror the last three books. And it's like, okay, we're in the home stretch here. This is where Harry and Cedric like have the adventure and work it all out. And there's been mortal peril before. But up until now, you expect everyone to survive. You and do. she just yanks that right away and we know from this point on that we're dealing with a very different kind of book kind of book and that the rest of the series is going to be extremely different the thing that's hard for me also about cedric's death is it's like just the line kill the spare yeah it's just like this example of like the banality of evil like they're not killing him because they hate him or they want him dead or he's an, an enemy It gives you a really good window into how depraved this Death Eater movement is. And it's Peter who does it. Yeah. And just at the drop of a hat, you're supposed, like, it takes a good bit of magic, says Imposter Moody earlier in the book. But Peter is supposed to be pretty unimpressive and bad at magic and, and and all of that but he is he is sunk to such a level that he can just summon this killing spell out of nowhere you know they don't even look cedric in the face mm-hmm. like they don't even see who it is that they're just like wasting i think that this is a way worse scene to read as an adult i didn't cry when cedric died when i first read this book like i was surprised and i found it really like disturbing but I had this idea that the people whose deaths matter are the characters that you really care about. And Cedric, like, you you go to like, but not love. But as an adult, it's like the scope is different and you understand the meaning of the death in a different way. And I find this, like, I was shaking when I read this scene. I was, like, really, 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 really upset. And I find it more upsetting than some of the later deaths of the characters that I love a lot more because of how thoughtless it is and because Mm -hmm. of how sudden and abrupt and because you witness Harry witnessing it. I mean, Harry's never been innocent, really, but he has been. Like, he, he, this, the, the, the deaths of his parents and the deaths that happened in the Wizarding World have remained fairly abstract for him. And he is our first child Cedric's our first child to die and that's a shitty thing to say because lots of children die and Harry is our first child to witness it and that's been inevitable all along but it still is like really it's like if you have a kid and the the first time that you see them see the horrors of the world it's like so much more disturbing as a grown-up to understand what it is they're like entering into knowledge of than as a kid to just like sort of understand it as one single death. The books are about, I think, at their core, how do you deal with the worst thing? How that do you could deal to you? How do you deal with the things that you can't deal with? Yeah. That, no. That you shouldn't have to, but And you, you do. To, yeah, you we do, all do. You know? Harry more than Many of us, but not more than most of us. I mean... Yeah. How do, you, how do you bear the things that can't be bared? And this is, uh... This is, like... It's unbearable. Really this is unbearable. an unbearable scene. And kids are asked to get through it. And we are being asked to get through it. And we have to be really brave to get through it. You know? That's what literature does for us. It asks us to be brave. As we experience things that are unexperienceably hard. This is a really important scene. This is like the most important. I actually think this is more important than a lot of the more horrible scenes to come. But I guess let's talk about those scenes a little bit. Let's talk about the graveyard. Yeah, well, um, location, location, location. Voldemort's got... Style. Yeah, he's got a taste for the dramatic, as we've seen with this whole Triwizard Cup plot. Um, I, 
it's scary. I think it's pretty scary. This is, uh, I mean, after Cedric gets dropped, you're thinking, how does Harry get out of this one? You know? It doesn't I mean, you know seem he's gonna, you, possible. You know he's going to get through you it. You do, but... but because the next one isn't called Ron Weasley and Avenging Harry's Death. <laughs> like, that's not the title of the book, so you know he's going to be okay. I think a lot of people kind of accuse this section of being pretty over the top, a little yeah. overwrought. I actually think it's really in keeping with Voldemort's character. Because he just, first of all, apparently they have to be at his father's gravesite because they have to use his bones. And that's like a little less creepy than like having his skeleton just like sitting somewhere. <laughs> Actually, just the dust flying right, out of yeah. the grave is like pretty dark, but like at least it's not like Tom Riddle skeleton. You know what I really like about this scene is I like that it's like some serious like weird sisters like Macbeth on the Heath shit. It did. It- did bring up those images for me. But I was also thinking, like, I made the joke about the recipe, but where the hell did Voldemort and Peter get this? I guess from, well, it's not Peter's idea. Voldemort knows how to, like, I I don't know. Were they, like, reading up crazy? Were they reading, like, recipes or what? What is the origin of this whole thing? Because it's, like extremely unlike anything else we've seen but you know what it's a lot like it's a lot like a horcrux voldemort taps into really ancient dark magic Mm. that's the thing one of the things that voldemort does that makes him like really really powerful in ways that other baddies are not is voldemort doesn't actually rely that much on the more kind of like contemporary like wand wavy magic because he has accessed the parts of himself that are so like inhuman that he's tapping into these total this like kind of earthy like kind of gothic primal magic like he he's doing magic that it feels like muggles could probably do if they were like depraved enough like this is just blood and bone and flesh. flesh yeah it's flesh blood and bone like these are the basic elements of creation in this way that i actually find really compelling this isn't Avada Kedavra even. This is more primal and more base than that. And I think Voldemort is powerful because he has figured out that those are the magics that last. Like Horcruxes are also like object magic in this like really basic way. You're right. And a lot of Voldemort's magic is about using elements of his personal history in right. the, that are really interesting, especially with the father, Harry... Peter. Peter. There's kind of a weird fucked up Trinity thing going on here. Oh, there super is. Harry's kind of, Harry's like sort of a, oddly like a surrogate son, He's the son of Voldemort in like a, they have a like kind of fucked up father-child relationship. I don't know where Peter fits into this whole thing. I think there's a, the ways in which Peter, I mean, Peter's a holy ghost in that Peter is sort of a nothing. Yeah. Like he's like a, like a a non-entity that nonetheless like plays an important role in how people understand Lord Voldemort. Yeah, it's just, so there's the, uh, there's like a perverse trinity here. You yeah. Know, the rule of, yeah, or at least... At least some rule of threes. Yeah, the rule of threes. Another thing that I think actually plays a really important role here and another way in which I think Voldemort is really powerful is that like Harry's fear is a really important element of his, like, rise to power again. Peter is like, oh, there's ways we could do it without killing him. Like, which I assume means we could get his blood. Right. But Voldemort's like, no, I need him to watch this happen because the witnessing is, like, an it's a fundamental part of the rising again. Like, which, again, is very, like, sort of a perversion of a Christ thing where Christ has to appear to his apostles. Yeah. In order for it to be real before he, like, ascends. So what Voldemort is saying to Peter, like, this needs to be witnessed. This doesn't just need the physical elements of flesh, blood, and bone. This needs, like, your eyes on me. What an asshole. Yeah, he's horrible. <laughs> he's horrible, but he's a genius. Lovo. Fucking Lovo. We're going to try to make that a thing. Yeah. Lovo. Uh, fuck Peter in Yo. these scenes. He could stop this. At any moment, which Harry, when he's thinking about the baby drowning, sort of observes, like... Well, Harry's like, please just drown it. Please just drown it. And, like, yeah, Peter could just hold it under. 
There's guess, no reason. He can't reason. really kill Voldemort because he's got all this like Horcrux security. But you the could, ultimate life insurance. You could deprive him of his body again. Yeah. Uh, you could keep him weak and spectral. He's way less dangerous as like a wart on somebody's head. And Peter clearly doesn't want him to come back. Peter is just too much of a fucking pansy to like do anything. He's so paralyzed by just like his fucking, I don't know, neuroses or his fear or his cowardice. I think it's more, he's too afraid of accepting the consequences of his actions up till now. Voldemort is his best shot still at, he's like thrown his lot in with Voldemort and he has to like see it out. He can't face what he's done in the wizarding world. That's one aspect. Also, you know, Voldemort's a strong personality and Peter has a weak personality. So Peter's in a cult basically yeah call your dad peter that comes yeah that comes with all the baggage that entails he's kind of i don't know yeah people get captured in bad things i think and caught up in bad things because they can't see how it could be any different i don't know do you feel any sympathy for him no i don't i i mean i i i I truly don't i think because you have a lot of example in these books of people that like figure out how to do the right thing yeah, in impossible right. circumstances. Just... And, like, even in book three, I had a little more, like, understanding of, like, this crazy position he's been in for so long. But at this moment, also because he cuts off his own hand. Ugh. Which is, like, it's crazy because it's, like, okay, I'm sorry, bitch. You are brave enough to 127 hours yourself, <laughs> but you're not brave enough to just fucking hold baby Voldemort under the water long enough that he stops kicking. That requires summoning a fair amount of like courage. Yeah. It's like some, it's like perverted, like self-loathing stooge courage. It's like, I'll do anything for you. So I'm going to figure out how to like get through this like unimaginable pain rather than just like get through like the fairly brief emotional pain of just disobeying this fucking monster. Uh, yeah. Uh, who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is is Molly and Bill Weasley for coming out to Family Weekend, showing Harry Potter some support and some Hogwarts pride. Right decent of them. And we find out that Molly got told off by the fat lady when she uh, snuck off for a midnight stroll with Arthur. So That's pretty cute. Very romantic. And yeah. Fleur gets the hots for Bill. Oh, Who I already mentioned didn't that. Yeah. Get the hots for Bill in these chapter in this I, book. I have the hots for Bill in this book. Bill's very hot. I mean, mine is obvious, but I just think we need to take one more minute and thank Cedric for his time, his brief and sweet time on this earth. I think he is the series ultimate unsung hero. One of them, yeah. We forget about him really quickly. We he's always a character toward whom our like main characters are pretty ambivalent. They're wrong about him profoundly. He's a good person. He would have grown up to be a wonderful man and he does not get to. Well, I think Harry thinks about him every day. And he should. It's just really sad. And I'm sorry this episode has been kind of a downer. I hope that you at least laughed at Alex's tiresome jokes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's just... Pour out a butterbeer for our sweet Hufflepuff Prince, Cedric. Born you till I join you. Yep. Thank you for everything, Cedric. <sighs> I know. Big sigh. Big sigh. This week's episode is brought to you by the Little Hangleton Graveyard. Muggles are dying to get in here. Oh my god. Harry might too. Oh. I got another one for you. Go. What did Lord Voldemort say to the tire shop employee? What? Fill the spare. God damn it. Okay. Thank you for lightening the mood. (laughs) That was terrible, but uh, I liked it. Tiresome. It was indeed tiresome. Well played, sir. (laughs) Somewhere somebody has their headphones in and they're laughing on my behalf. Good. (laughs) There's Uh, Voldemort where that came from. Oh my God. No, I love it. Okay. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's excellent performance of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. 
Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever your preferred podcast app is. We're on all of them. Oh, and you know, rate, review, subscribe, and also tell a friend. That has been going really well. You guys have been bringing more wonderful people into our lives. So keep telling your friends and family. Make them listen to an episode. We've had a lot of people tell us that they like force listened to episodes of this on road trips with members of their family and friends. So do that. That's a great idea. I highly, highly endorse forcing your mom to listen to The Quibbler with you (laughs) as you like drive to college. Do that for 100% sure. You can find us on social media. We are at Quibbler Podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. We're all the places. We are also at quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. Last week you heard we read some wonderful letters. We've already gotten a couple more. And keep them coming. We love hearing from you all. And next week it's going to get weirder. We are reading... The Death Eaters and Priori Encantatum. So join us then. We're going to say some shit in Latin. Thanks, amigos. He turned back, took a right turn, and saw an odd golden mist floating ahead of him. What would happen if he walked through the mist? Was it worth chancing it, or should he double back? He took a deep breath and ran through the enchanted mist. The world turned upside down. Till the world turns upside down. Till the world turns upside down. I imagine death so much it feels more like a memory. This is where it gets me. On my feet, the enemy ahead of me. If this is the end of me, at least... Harry was hanging from the ground with his hair on end, his glasses dangling off his nose, threatening to fall into the bottomless sky. Think, he told himself, as all the blood rushed to his head. Think. But not one of the spells he had practiced had been designed to combat a sudden reversal of ground and sky. Nobody knew what kind of magic spell to use. Slime and snails.